Good morning, I'm Alicia. I'll be reading the uh, scripture for this morning. You can follow along on the screens um, or in your scripture journals or your Bibles, whatever you prefer. Uh, It starts uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Thank you, Alicia. Good morning. Excited to uh, begin a new series with you all uh, called Rest Assured. Rest Assured, and this morning's title is actually Confidence, so Rest Assured with Confidence. And um, as we start this series, we're actually going to be covering uh, the next three chapters of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. It's uh, chapters three through six. And uh, if you weren't here for the prior uh, series to give you a little bit of an idea of, uh, of who the letter's written to, it's people that are Hellenistic Jews that have come to faith in Christ and are now processing their faith. And so a letter has been written to these believing Jews, if you will, uh, these converted Jews that are Hebrews. So this is a letter written to Hebrews. Um, And so as I started thinking about uh, confidence and the idea of what confidence is, um, I know, Dan, you're going to hate that I'm saying this, but I have like a weird return for some reason. It's driving me nuts. If I don't say it, I'll be like, squirrel, squirrel, squirrel the whole time. So I just have to say it, otherwise I'll be distracted the whole time. Sorry. Um, the, uh, as I started thinking about confidence and having confidence in things, uh, I started thinking about my sisters growing up. So I have two sisters, one older, one younger. And most times I would pair up with one of them to bring pain and discomfort to the other, you know? So I was like the middle child, and so it was always like, you know, uh, partnering up with my younger sister to like really torment my older one, or vice versa. I mean, you name it from like hiding under her bed and whispering, (laughs) which actually is one of my favorite things ever that I've done to her. Uh, She's like sleeping, and I'm like, are you here? She's like, what? I was like, like, is someone in here? quiet, like, hello. Anyway, it has nothing to do with what I'm saying, but I tormented her. So in either case, I would pair up with my sister and every once in a great while, every once in a great while, they would kind of partner together and have like a whole female thing against the only boy. And uh, there was one time in particular, uh, we had this, this idea, you've probably done it before, at the very least you've seen it, where someone stands up and you tell them to fall back. It's like the trust fall, you know, and you like cross your arms. You're like, I'm going to catch you. And then you catch you. So my sisters were like, let's do it. Let's do it. Oh, my gosh. So funny. And so they're catching each other. And, uh, you know, they're really acting it up. Like, it was so scary. You let me fall so far that time. Like, my stomach went up. I'm like, oh, this looks fun. And they're like, Claude, you want to do it? And I was like, yeah. And so I run over and they're like, all right, we're going we're gonna to let you fall pretty far. So that way you really like feel it because it's awesome. Like you feel your stomach go up in your throat. I'm like, okay. And so I get up there and uh, I'm like, ready? They're like, I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. And then you go back. Okay, one, two, three. And so I go back and just boom, 
they do not catch me at all. I just bounce right off the ground, and uh, I'm like screaming and yelling, like, what in the world happened? They're like, we didn't know. We didn't know. And they're like kind of chuckling. They're like, it was funny. We didn't do it on purpose. And I was like gullible enough to believe that, because who would allow a loved one to bounce back of head first into the flipping ground, right? No loving, sane person does that. So I thought, certainly, they did this on accident. Certainly, they would not do this again. And so they're like, yeah, no, no, get back up there. We're sorry, you know? And so I get back up there, and there's like this little thing we're standing on. I was like, are you sure you're going to catch me? Yeah, yeah, we're going to catch you. We're going to catch you. And so one, two, so am I falling back on three? On three. I was like, why don't you guys just put your hands out so that way you definitely have your hands out? They're like, oh, good idea, you know? <laughs> I was like, wait a second. <laughs> so one, two, three, I go back and just, boom, I fall on the ground again, like an absolute moron wanting to believe that his sisters love them, uh, love him, and they don't because they're evil and they were sent by Satan uh, to destroy me at a young age, and yet let's spiritualize it. No, I was just joking. Um, yeah, so they, uh, they tried to kill me at a young age. And so I, uh, I bounced off the ground and they're like, come on, it's just because you were heavy and we weren't really, he- you know, like we weren't really ready. I was like, I'm not doing it again. I'm not doing it again, ever. And they're like, why not? We love you. Liars. So there's, there's this idea when it comes to confidence, you have confidence in a relationship, a relational confidence. And you like to think that you can have confidence in those you're related to. That doesn't always pan out well, especially if you've bounced your head off the ground before. Some of you are realizing now what's wrong with me. Um, but there's other types of confidence, right? You can have confidence in people's ability, too. So there was a, a story that I heard long ago, and I actually shared this uh, story publicly probably about 15 years ago because it struck me so much where um, there was a, a, uh, a person that was walking a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And so pretty famous guy, I guess, that, that went across this tightrope uh, across Niagara Falls. And you're like, wow, that's incredible. You're dumb. And uh, so they come across. They're like, that's amazing. Wow. And so he's doing all these weird things, you know. Uh, and so he gets this wheelbarrow and puts it up on the, on the rope. And he says, who thinks I can go across, you know, the with the wheelbarrow, pushing the wheelbarrow. And everyone's like, yay, they all want to see it. And they're cheering and stuff. And they're like, and so he looks at this woman. He goes, ma'am, do you believe I can go across Niagara Falls on this wheelbarrow and come back? And she's like, I do. And he's like, okay, get in the wheelbarrow. Crickets, <laughs> right? You're like, oh, that's different. Yeah. And so the reality is we can have confidence in someone's ability verbally. We can say we believe in them. We think this is great. But then when the rubber meets the road, when it's really time to get in the wheelbarrow, we're like, and I'll pass, right? Because there's something at risk. And so the question I want to ask you this morning as we move through the text is this, what do you put your confidence in? What do you put your confidence in? What is it that you put your confidence in? And, and this is a, a more important question than maybe we realize or at the very least that we want to admit. And the reason why is because it reveals something about us, something that we may not want to talk about. You see, confidence by definition, defined, is this. This is how confidence is defined. The feeling of belief that one can rely on someone or something, semicolon, firm trust, firm trust. So when you have confidence in something, you have a firm trust in it. You believe in someone or something. So the first thing that you may not want to admit is as a human, you put your confidence or your trust in something or someone. 
You might not want to admit it. Uh, the reason why you might not want to admit it is because for some of us, it's maybe viewed as a form of weakness or um, some type of, uh, of opportunity to be taken advantage of. And so we don't like the idea often that we put our confidence or our trust in something. And if you've been really hurt by others, maybe even people that you thought to be trustworthy, maybe a family member, maybe sisters, anyway, <laughs> well, maybe you've put your, your, uh, your trust, your confidence in them, and they violated that trust, then you might be tempted to say, I trust no one. I trust no one. Confidence? I don't have confidence in anybody. I've been burned so many times that I don't waste the energy on other people. But I want to submit to you that saying you trust no one is just another way of saying all of my trust and confidence is in myself. You see, because as humans, not Christians, not, not non-Christians, and I know that we have both extremes in the room and everyone in between, regardless of who you are as a human being, regardless of your spiritual journey, you put your confidence in something or someone. And if you're declaring or you're tempted to declare you put your confidence in nothing and you trust no one, all it means is you trust yourself more than everybody else. Listen, this life is going to rise or fall on me. All right, I've been hurt, I've been taken advantage of, and so I'm going to get this done. And so we put up walls. We say, all of my trust and all of my confidence is in myself. We all put our confidence in something or someone. Some of us put our confidence in our friends, in our spouse. We think our spouse is going to get it done for us. Put all of our confidence, our trust in our job, confidence and our work ethic, our possessions. The problem is those things topple, right? Because if you've lived life for any amount of time, you know that if you put all of your confidence in your spouse, unless you're married to my wife, uh, then it's going to let you down. Otherwise, everybody's like, wait, what happened? <laughs> she, she knows I'm messing with her. But the, the fact is, any spouse, if you put your confidence and your trust in your spouse, they're going to let you down. Not because they want to, not because they set out to be one who lets you down, but because they're human beings. And so if you put all your confidence in a job and all your trust in a job, then what you're doing is saying, listen, all my identity, all of my hope, it's attached to my job until you lose your job. Then your identity is rocked. A boyfriend, a girlfriend, classmates, friends, you name it, your work ethic, the things that you possess, the things that define you, you put your confidence and your trust in that, your hopes attached to it. Now, it's possible if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus this morning that you might say, I hear you, pastor. That's why all my confidence is in the Lord. And if you talk that way, I would love to hear you say it because that was awesome. My confidence is in the Lord. Anyway, and that may be true. That may be true. It might be true that as a Christ follower, there might be a gauge within you where you say, listen, I'm going to trust the Lord here. I'm going to put my confidence in the Lord. And so to you, I would ask this, what wheelbarrow are you currently climbing into? What wheelbarrow are you currently climbing into? What I mean by that is this, what is the God risk you're currently involved in? You see, because oftentimes we say all of our confidence and trust are, is in the Lord, but that's because we have a situation that we don't like and we want to get through it. And so we declare spiritual things and 
they're true things. I'm not trying to make light of them at all. I'm just simply saying, you're, you're saying, listen, I have confidence in the Lord. Well, that's great in your darkest moments, in the difficulties, when the doctor says the bad news, when something's going wrong, when you do lose your job. I'm gonna put my confidence and trust in the Lord. But here's the deal. To put your confidence and your trust in the Lord day in and day out, I would say when you're in the good times, what God risks are you taking? Because confidence and trust doesn't only come in the difficult moments, right? It's a lifestyle of trust. It's a lifestyle of confidence. So what are you risking for God right now? What is the thing that the Lord has told you and you're climbing into the wheelbarrow and saying, listen, I don't just believe from a distance that God is able. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm climbing in the wheelbarrow. God's got this thing. You see, it's easy to say, but how often do we really live it? How often do we really live it? You see, confidence and trust is not a single act. It's not like a thing that happens. Like, now I trust you. It starts at a certain place, but then it's either maintained or violated, right? Think about that for a second. It, it, it's not that shocking or earth-shattering of a concept, but I don't think we take a lot of time to think often how confidence and trust is built with individuals. And yet, how is it that we build our confidence and our trust in the Lord? What does that even look like? It's a decision to trust someone, but it's daily and ongoing. It's continually being built. And so if you consider yourself a spiritual person in this room, if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, I want to challenge you to kind of slow your declaration of spiritual jargon for a moment. Don't be quick to say, well, all my trust is in the Lord. All my confidence is in him. Just pause that for a moment and continue on the journey of considering what it looks like to build confidence and trust in the Lord daily. Because it would be easy and honestly tempting to simply stand up here as a, as a communicator and say, so let's trust in the Lord. Throw out a little Proverbs, cross-reference it. Huh? Trust in the Lord. Boom, go and do it. And everybody's like, I will trust the Lord. And you'd leave and be like, except I'm not, right? And so it'd be super easy to just kind of placate to that, to just simply say, trust the Lord, pull up your bootstraps, try harder. Listen, you don't trust God? Well, start. Come on, be a man, be a woman, trust him. Do it. It's all human effort. It's human effort that at a point comes to an end. You can be the most disciplined person in the world. You can work as hard and you can roll up your sleeves and you can put it all in and that's admirable. But you can also put all your confidence and trust in your work ethic. Eventually, it'll come to an end. We all age. At some point, we're broken. At some point, we can't lift that anymore. At some point, we can't stand anymore. It, it's the the depressing reality of the broken, fallen world that we live in, we are going to age, get old, and die. And if all of your identity is wrapped up in confidence in yourself, it's going to fall short. So, as tempting as it would, would be to just say, try harder, the fact is life happens. Scary and painful things happen. And in those moments, we're confronted with the decision of where or with whom we will put our trust? Where is it that we will put our confidence? For some of us, it's a monthly decision. It's a daily decision. 
It's an hourly decision. Some of you are in the darkest moment of your life right now. Unbeknownst to us, or we know it fully, you're in that dark moment, and literally it seems like by the minute you have to place your confidence in something or someone to see you through. This is exactly where the original hearers, the original readers of Hebrews were at. The question was, will they remain loyal to Jesus in the face of cultural pressures and life challenges? And so that's what chapter 3 is really addressing. You see, chapter 3 begins a new section in the book of Hebrews. Uh, The original overall uh, argument of Hebrews in chapter 1 and 2 are kind of introducing these overarching themes that will be unpacked throughout the 13 chapters of the book as a whole. And as this chapter shifts a little bit, chapter 3 shifts to the superiority of Jesus over Moses it further confirms that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and prophecies. And so I'm going to dissect verse 1 a little bit, and then we're going to move through the rest of the verses this morning. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. There's a lot actually happening in that verse. Uh, The first part, therefore, the first word, I've talked about this in chapter 2, therefore is actually pointing to the previous chapter. So there's an argument that's taking place in chapter 2, and then based on that argument being established, chapter 3 begins with the statement, therefore, as a result. So it means based on what was revealed. And so in light, in in that chapter, Jesus is revealed as the royal, uh, as the high priest. And so in light of Jesus' high priesthood, the fact that he tasted death, for everyone, and is the source of our salvation. Because of that, because of all of those things, holy brothers, holy brothers. You might just look at that and think that it's a descriptor, you know, therefore, because of all that, holy brothers, um, you might kind of miss the significance happening here unless you consider the context. The original readers functioned according to the Levitical system. So obviously everyone in the room is like, oh, Levitical system, right. <laughs> Just kidding. So Levitical, the Levitical system, uh, if you don't know, uh, then you're in the majority, I assume. And so the, the Levitical system required sacrifice to achieve holiness. Okay, so the Levitical system said this. It says, listen, as a human being, you can never achieve holiness. So holy was never a descriptor to a human. It was impossible. You couldn't achieve it according to the Levitical Hellenistic Jew upbringing. The only way uh, a Hellenistic Jew could achieve any form of holiness, it was to take a, a spotless, perfect animal and based on the sin in the Levitical law that would lay out the sin necessary to the corresponding uh, animal. Seems a little grotesque in our society, but in that society, they would then bring this animal uh, to the priest, and the priest would go through a process, they would go through a cleansing process, and they would uh, slaughter this animal, and its innocent blood would cover the sins of that person. It was a sacrificial system, a Levitical system. So what is happening here is that the author is declaring that you are a holy brotherhood. But that's only possible through sacrifice. The author's making a Christological claim. Catch this. Right up front, the author is saying, you're holy and you're a family. Because of what? Because of Christ's sacrifice. 
And so he's going back and he's saying, listen, the law that you live out, it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, in the work of Christ. You are holy. You are declared holy and you are a family. If you remember back, if you were with us in chapter two, this familial idea being just woven into the concept of the gospel that, listen, we're, we're a brotherhood. We're a family of believers. And so the, the author is leaning in and saying, listen, because of what Christ has done, you're holy. So therefore, holy brothers, Therefore, redeemed family, you who share in a heavenly calling, you who share in a heavenly calling, he's saying that God transforms us into his people with purpose and calling, with purpose and calling. The author goes on, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. Like I said, I'm going to dissect this verse. I won't do it with all of the verses, but I think it's important to understand. This word consider is uh, in the Greek, in the original Greek, is the idea of meditation or contemplation. So what the author is saying is based on uh, who you are because of what Christ has done and the fact that you are a family redeemed by the sacrifice that Christ has made, you have a purpose and a calling. Consider Jesus meditate, contemplate on Jesus, focus on Jesus, because it will recalibrate your mind to a biblical worldview. But lest we kind of confuse ourselves with poor theology, which I'm sure never happens, (laughs) we need to think on Jesus correctly. And so the author goes on and says, consider, contemplate, focus, think on Jesus the apostle and high priest. We rarely, if ever, think of Jesus as an apostle. We hear of the apostle Paul, we hear of all these other apostles, but apostle means simply sent one, which means he had a specific message and a specific mission. And so he's saying Jesus, the sent one, was, was also, not only was he on purpose living out his mission and his message, but he's also the high priest. And the high priest was the one responsible for atoning for the sins of a nation. We're going to talk more about this, this priesthood of Jesus and the implications of that in upcoming weeks. But there's some great implications to the fact that the author is saying, listen, Jesus is not only sent, not only was he sent for a purpose and a plan, but he also atoned for the sins of a people. And so there's something incredible kind of being set up. It's not enough uh, to focus or to meditate on Jesus and what he's done. We have to focus and meditate on who Jesus is correctly. We have to consider the implications of Jesus in our life. I think oftentimes we think of uh, Jesus as distant or the work of God as a, as a distant thing or a get out of hell free card. I grew up thinking that, right? Like, I'm gonna, I did something wrong. I better pull out my get out of hell thing, you know? Like, hey, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Like, every night I had this rote prayer I would pray. You know, God, forgive me for lying, cheating, stealing. And if I die tonight, have mercy on my soul. That's a picture into my jacked up theology as a kid. But I was like, oh, please, if I just die tonight. And I, was like, and I never stole anything. But I had the thing, like, I had it down. Because I thought, if I can get to those things, if I just say I'm sorry for all of it, right? I had this idea of avoiding hell instead of a relational dynamic where I walked and spoke with Jesus throughout my day. That when there was uh, a wrongdoing that I could correct it. You see, our relationships with humanity on this level inform the relationship we have with God this way. 
whether we like it or not. If we're slow to resolve conflict on this level, it's amazing how we struggle to resolve conflict with the Lord. And so it's starting to focus and meditate our heart on the idea that God has forgiven us of so much. How can I hold things against those that have wronged us? And the implications obviously continue on. The truth of the gospel coming alive in our hearts because we've committed to meditate on the reality of it, to contemplate its, implica- its implications in our lives. Verse 2 says, it continues the sentence, who was faithful to him who appointed him. So Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. Faithful, another word for trustworthy. So Jesus is trustworthy. And the insertion of Moses here might seem odd. Like he's talking about Jesus and who Jesus is. And it's like, just so you know, he's faithful the same way Moses was. You're like, what? Why are you talking about Moses? Again, you have to consider the context of Hellenistic Jews and the reality that they had utmost reverence for Moses. Moses had led them into the promised land. He'd taken them from bondage. He was a servant of the Lord. And so they have complete and... and uh, Total reverence for Moses. The author is making a connection here that we start to see unpack in verses three through four. Verse three through four says this, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. It's kind of a, it would be offensive to a non-Christ following Hellenistic Jew. So these are converts that can handle this, but it's a, a big statement. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So now we know from earlier texts that that Jesus was present at the point of creation. And so the author is saying, listen, he was present at the point of creation. He is the creator of all things. Moses is worthy of respect, but Jesus deserves more as the builder of the house, as the creator of the universe. We'll read on and connect some dots here in verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken were to be spoken later. So now for the first time, the author of Hebrews is starting to put direct connections. In past chapters, we see connections of the Old Testament being quoted and we're trying to draw context. But here he's actually saying, listen, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to to testify. So the reason that Moses existed, the reason why he was faithful was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses is pointing to something. His life is pointing to something. The author is saying Moses' ministry existed to testify about things to come. And the reality that the sonship that Jesus has is greater than servanthood that Moses had. Now, it's important, as as a servant, this section here says, as a servant, uh, the typical Greek word, if you read it in other places where it refers to servant, it actually makes a reference to that word. It could also be used uh, as slave. And so slave or bond servant, depending on the, the usage in the Greek. And this word, however, is a different word for servant. It doesn't mean slave. It means it's a servant that held a position of nobility under the authority 
of the one who appointed him. So when he's saying servant concerning Moses, he's not diminishing what it is that Moses did. In fact, he's saying Moses is not like a slave at the will of God. He was appointed as a noble person entrusted So the authority of the one that has appointed him is now resting upon him. But because sonship is greater than servanthood, Jesus is the greater Moses. You see, Moses took people out of bondage because uh, he brought them out of bondage and into a promised land. Jesus doesn't take us from a place of bondage into a promised land. He actually sets us free from the captivity of sin in our life and sets us free once and for all. It's not a temporary exodus. It's it's an eternal exodus. The implications go on further and further. As you look at the life of Moses, he's literally pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses. We have to have perspective that the Old Testament points to Jesus and that created and even faithful people, trustworthy people, respected people, people like Moses are created by the creator. And so what the author is saying is if you have any confidence in Moses, if you have any confidence in the created If you have any confidence in your spouse, if you have confidence in your job, in your work ethic, et cetera, et cetera, wherever your confidence lies, transfer your confidence to the one worthy of your trust. Because God created whatever it is you're putting your trust in. It's an interesting concept. We can trust people or we could not trust people. So if you only trust yourself, what the author is saying is, Will you take yourself off the leadership position of your one and only life and risk placing God as the only one trustworthy, even over yourself? Will you risk trusting God? It's a profound statement. The transfer of confidence to the one worthy of our trust. Because here's the deal. God will never leave us or forsake us. Your friends will let you down. Your spouse, they might not intend to. Maybe they will. Either way, they'll let you down. Your friend at school, the list goes on. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your job, all these things, they're, they're created things. Here's the one we don't like the most. You're going to let yourself down. You're going to let yourself down. Did you know that at your core, you are wicked? (laughs) You're wicked in need of a savior. Maybe I'm the only one in the room willing to admit it, but I'll tell you right now, I understand the wickedness of my own mind, my own heart, my own intentions, the way that my mind skews off and the way that I have to recorrect my thoughts and the motives of my heart. And it's not because I muster up the effort, but it's because of the redeeming work of who God is and what he has done that recalibrates my heart and mind. Jesus recalibrates our heart and mind. Verse six says this, but Christ as faithful over God's house as a son. And then this, 
and we are his house. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the first time the word Christ is written in Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus is mentioned earlier, but this is the first time Christ is mentioned in the, lit- in the letter to the Hebrews, and it's the Greek equivalent of Messiah. At this point, the author's not pulling any more punches. Literally saying, here's the deal, Jesus is the Messiah. If you haven't connected the dots, if you don't get it yet, Jesus is the Messiah, meaning the anointed one, and we are his house. Listen, he has made us holy. He has drawn us into a family. He's called us with a purpose and he's building us. He's literally building our faith. He's building our hope because of that reality, we can rest assured with confidence. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus. Romans says, as we focus on scripture, on the reading of his word, that it transforms our mind. It transforms our mind. If you want to recalibrate your heart and mind to see the world differently, it's not based on your best efforts. It's based on focusing on the one that lived the life you cannot live and allowing the reality of what Jesus has done and what he has accomplished on the cross And what he did after he rose again, that those things are at work in and through our lives. That we can't withhold forgiveness because Jesus doesn't withhold it from us. That we can't withhold mercy because God has extended mercy to us. That we can't withhold grace because we've been given grace. You see, if you live in a little bubble where you think, listen, I'm super spiritual. God loves me and I hate them. But you don't understand, like they wronged me. They violated my trust. I have no confidence in them. But Jesus, listen, I'm not saying go back to an abusive situation. I'm not saying that. Hear what I'm saying. I'm talking about people that are otherwise loving and broken people doing broken things. And we have the gall to hold it against them as if we have not been forgiven of so much. Will you risk loving the unlovable? So my sisters are laughing hysterically as I'm literally rubbing my head thinking, I may have brain damage. (laughs) My dad comes over and yells at them. We had a hardwood floor. My head bounced off the ground. My dad's like, what are you doing? Like, well, we're just playing. We thought we could catch him. And I was like, I just wanted to try it. And I may or may not have been crying. I don't think I was. But, you know, I was 20, so. um, (laughs) Just kidding. Anyway, no, so, uh, you know, just this little kid. And and, and so I'm I'm so upset. Like, I I wanted to experience it. And I was like, but, Dad, I want to do it. And he's like, no, you're not doing this game again. It's like, but they were catching each other and they're laughing and stuff. He said, fine, get up there. I'll catch you. And so I get up on this thing, and I look over my shoulder, and he goes, go ahead. And I'm like, but Dad, are you, are you ready? He's like, yeah, I'm going to catch you. I'm like, well, but I'm kind of heavy, too, because the girls couldn't catch me. He's like, Claude, fall back. I'll catch you. And so here's what's interesting. I had anxiety. Someone had violated my trust. 
Not my father. My father never violated my trust. But I was burned. My capacity to give others confidence was damaged by someone else. And so I'm here in this moment. And I'm broken. And I'm directing the brokenness towards my father that's never let me down. And my dad looks at me and he goes, Claude, I'm your father. I'm not going to let you fall. And so I stood there for a second. And what was funny about it is focusing on the fact that he declared me his son recalibrated my heart and mind. It was like, duh, of course. He's not my evil stepsisters. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. They're my actual sisters. But, and they're still evil. Um, but, the <laughs> but I'm thinking like, Right, why would he bear the consequences and why would I be broken? And so I just threw myself back. Without a second thought, I just threw myself back and of course he caught me and I laughed and it was fun and I said, will you let me fall further this time? He's like, sure, do it one more time. And so I went down, I was like, dad, like stop me right before I hit the ground. He's like, all right, Claude, this is getting creepy, you know? But like, I'm laughing and enjoying it. Why? Because my confidence in my father was restored. Why? Because I focused on my identity as his son. Some of us in this room have had our, our trust violated. Our trust has been violated. And I want to tell you whether you realize it or not, your capacity to trust your heavenly father is in the balance. You're jaded. And so you roll up your sleeves and you say, you know what? I think I got this, God. I'm going to sit as the Lord of my own life. I'm going to work out this situation. I got this, God. Listen, if things get too hard, then I'll call on you. But I think I got this one. The author of Hebrews is saying, that's not the way it works. Jesus is trustworthy. Because of his work, you're called holy. You're part of a family. You have a purpose and a calling. God, God was sent on mission to pay the penalty you could not pay for yourself. Now live like sons and daughters. Have confidence and a hope in what God has called you to do and be. My confidence grew as I contemplated that I was his son. When was the last time you contemplated the implications of the truth of the gospel in your life? That you quieted down the busyness and you contemplated, you considered Jesus. We always say that the text requires something from us. And so I have an application question I want you to consider. It's this. What will I act on this week because of the confidence I have in Christ? What will I act on? In other words, what wheelbarrow will you jump in? What is it that, that you say, you know what, God? All right, I'm going to do it. It's scary. It's risky. I'm going to do it because you're calling me to do it. Because you're calling me to reorient this part of my life. To recalibrate my heart and mind. That I would remind myself of the reality of the truth of the gospel and the way it seeps into every area and every facet of my life. And so, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk it. I'm going to take the step. We have a because and therefores here. They embody what it is that we value and why. And so I want to read one of the because and therefores as we consider this application. It's God risks. 
Because God sees what we can't, we value God risks. Therefore, we respond when God speaks, pursue efforts that require supernatural intervention to succeed, and while we aren't irresponsible, we resist the comfort zone and don't maintain or play it safe out of fear. God risk. So what will you act on this week? Because of the confidence, because of the trust you have in Christ. As you consider that question, I want to ask you to just bow your heads or close your eyes, not because uh, you're going to do anything weird, it's just the worship team is coming forward and I, I don't want you to be distracted. As your head bow, heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want you to consider what the application might look like in your life. And for some of you, if you're not in relationship with Christ this morning, if you've kind of reserved that right to be the Lord and leader of your own life, you're still trying to work things out. Maybe for you, the application, the thing that you will risk is to surrender your life to the Lord. That's the thing you need to act on this week. Say, you know what? I want you to be the Lord and leader of my life. I've tried this enough. God, will you you begin to show how trustworthy you are in and through my life? And so if that's you this morning with your head bowed and your eyes closed, or if you want, you can look at the ground if you get easily distracted with your eyes closed. But if that's you this morning, it's as easy as, as simply praying a prayer. In the quietness of your mind, I'm not going to embarrass you. I don't like to be embarrassed. I won't make you come forward or anything like that. This is a a decision for you to make. That's you. If you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life, it can be this easy. In the quietness of your mind, say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I know you died for my sins. Would you forgive me? Be the Lord and leader of my life. Help me to live for you. It's that easy. It's the beginning of a relationship. For others of you this morning, maybe the way that it looks like acting, maybe that that application is, you've prayed that prayer, but you've never made that public. So for you, maybe the thing you need to act on this week is to go to our website and sign up to be water baptized the next time we do that. That you just go public with your decision to follow Jesus. For others of you this morning, I, I don't know what it looks like to act because of the confidence that you have in Christ, but it might look like a missional risk. It might mean being the hands and feet of Jesus. It might mean forgiving someone that's not very forgivable. It might mean giving to something greater than yourself and and loosening the grasp that you have on material things. It might mean revisiting a relationship that you damaged. That's your fault. Somewhere along the line, maybe you can't remember whose fault it is. And I think in those moments when you can't remember, I think it's the Christ-like thing to, to say, you know what? I don't remember who was wrong, but I'm willing to be wrong if it means restoring this relationship. So whatever it is, can we... Can we allow that to be in the past? Would you forgive me? Would you risk humbling yourself 
because Jesus humbled himself for you. Humility is so counterintuitive in our society. So I don't pretend to know what it is, but I know this. Every single person in this room has a step to take because the scripture requires something from every one of us. We never outpace the truth of the gospel to reorient our lives, to recalibrate our hearts. Let's consider that.